following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. If you were here uh, a few weeks ago or if you joined us online, you may recall that I spoke um, on learning to lament. And uh, in that sermon, um, I asked us to examine how we go about expressing ourselves when our hearts are troubled or when we experience distress. And we explored how God has given us the gift of lament, which I believe is his way of giving his children the safety and the space to express our most raw and our most honest emotions back to him. And I believe this is, this is God's desire for us, that we be honest, honest about our emotions, honest about what we're feeling, because in doing so, we're being honest about really what's inside of our hearts. And, uh, you know, if you've attended uh, any of our parenting seminars, you may have heard or seen the slide and heard Pastor Steve say, you know, your emotions most honestly reveal what is in your heart. Your emotions most honestly reveal what is in your heart. And this is important because oftentimes we're not really honest with ourselves. Um, Years ago, I heard a pastor say that no one lies to you more than you lie to yourself. And um, if you think about it, I think it's true. we, We lie to ourselves all the time. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we're this type of person, that we're patient, that we're forgiving, that we're generous until we realize that we're not. Or we deceive ourselves into thinking that this is what we actually believe, that God is sovereign, that God is in control of all things, that God is good, and yet oftentimes our emotions and what we feel reveal that maybe we don't really believe that, at least maybe in that moment. Uh, There was a young boy, a four-year-old boy, a few years back named Andrew Macias, who um, was about to go to his first day of preschool in East L.A., and um, a TV reporter asked him um, how he felt about that. And so I just want to show you this quick video uh, that kind of, I think, unpacks or ex- explains just how we sometimes deny the reality of what's in our hearts. Andrew, are you excited for pre-kindergarten? Yes. Why? I don't know. Are you going to miss your mom? No. No? <laughs> 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 you think he's going to miss his mom? He said no. But what do you really believe? I think his tears say much more. So apparently the reporter took a lot of heat for making this little boy cry. And so she interviewed him again as a follow-up a couple of years later. And I want if you could play that video. Since I'm now infamous for making kids cry, I figured no harm in asking this one more time. Are you going to miss your mom? Yes. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Courtney Friel, KTLA 5 News. Okay, so he's a little more honest that time, right? So I found it interesting, you know, that upon further reflection, and now as a six-year-old boy, that he was much more in touch with his emotions, and he was able to give a more honest answer. And, you know, in many ways, our emotions, I think, are a gift from God in that they help reveal the true condition of our hearts to ourselves. And I believe the Holy Spirit can often use our emotions for this purpose if we are aware of it. Um, As I said last time I spoke, I'm convinced that you cannot understand 
and embrace God's heart until you are first honest about what's in yours. And King David in the Bible was so good at this. And I believe that is why God calls him a man after my own heart. Not because his heart was holy or pure. You know, it really wasn't. But because he was radically honest with himself. And he was radically honest before God, even in his darkest moments. And this takes courage. This takes discipline. And this takes humility. And I'm convinced that you cannot obey the first and the greatest commandment to love God with all of ourselves, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, until you can first come to a place where you can express to him all that is inside of us, your hurts, angers, frustrations, sorrow, grief, pain. But we don't like exploring our emotions, especially our negative ones, right? Because it, it forces us to confront the reality of our brokenness, and the reality of the brokenness of this world. And dwelling on these emotions requires us to, to dwell in, in dark places that are often triggered by a, a profound sense of loss, whether it's the loss of a relationship or the loss of a loved one, whether it's the loss of a dream or a hope that we feel that we are entitled to, or a grave injustice. You know, oftentimes it's a wrongdoing or a mistreatment that triggers these emotions. Someone has done something against us. And if you have children, you probably know this all too well, right? Nothing sets anger or grief off in a child than more than when they feel an injustice has been done against them. You probably know what I'm talking about, right? Like, why does she get the bigger piece of pizza? Why can't I get an iPhone when everyone else has iPhones? Why is my chore harder than everyone else's chores? And I think this is true of all of us, even as adults. And nothing stirs anger in us quicker and more strongly than when we feel that we have been wronged. Whether it's being treated unfairly at work, a false accusation by someone we hardly know, feeling cheated out of something by a friend, maybe even something as petty as just getting cut off on the road. It doesn't take much for us to, to enter into a rage, does it? But our emotions reveal the inner nature of our hearts. And in doing so, they often expose the depths of our own selfishness and our own sin. And this is important. I think as followers of Jesus, we should always be examining our emotions, seeking to understand with the help of the Holy Spirit what is going on inside of us, what is hidden in our own hearts that sometimes we can't see. But we shouldn't stop there. You know, I think as followers of Jesus, it's also important to examine the emotions of Jesus that we might better understand the heart of God. Because if our emotions reveal what's inside of our hearts, then what does Jesus' emotions reveal about the nature of God's heart? I believe God in his loving kindness has provided numerous examples of Jesus expressing his emotions all throughout the Gospels for our benefit, for our edification whether it's his joy or his compassion or his quote-unquote negative emotions like anger, grief, and anxiety. David Paulison, in his book, Good and Angry, Redeeming Anger, Irritation, Complaining, and Bitterness, he says this, Many people view God as infinitely malleable, someone or something to whom each of us is free to attach our own opinions. 
as if God's character were decided from the bottom up. But God is portrayed in the Bible as a person. He expresses all the characteristics of personality. He notices people and evaluates what he sees. He plans and acts purposefully. He feels, thinks, relates, and remembers. At every turn, this person reveals his likes and dislikes, or better, his loves and hates. Those words capture how intensely his pleasure and displeasure operate. This God inspired songs of lament and love. He said that people can actually know him, and he sent his one and only son, Jesus, so that we could see exactly how God in the flesh uses anger. Jesus did not live a calm life. He cared too much, yet he was not a tense person. He was not irritable, anxious, or driven, but he was not detached, cool, or aloof either. He was no Stoic or Buddhist. He plunged into the storms of human sufferings and sins. He felt keenly. (coughs) Excuse me. Yeah, I love that last word. He, He felt keenly. And if you think about that, God feels keenly. You know, we worship Jesus as the Son of God, but we often forget that Jesus was also fully man and is also fully man who felt everything we feel. But what what caused Jesus to feel what he felt? And what did he ultimately do with it? You know, we will not be looking at every occasion that Jesus expressed emotions, but I do want to highlight a few examples today, which I think gives us a powerful picture into the heart of God. And I believe this is not only insightful for us, but it's also instructive to us as followers of Jesus. And so we're going to briefly look at three particular emotions. What made Jesus angry? What made Jesus grieve? And what made Jesus weep? So beginning with what made Jesus angry, what what comes to your mind when you think about angry Jesus? I'm guessing for most of us, it's when he drives out the money changers in the temple, right, in Jerusalem. John records this in the second chapter of his gospel. Right after Jesus' first miracle in Cana, at the start of his ministry in John chapter 2, it says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And then again, towards the end of Jesus' life and ministry, after he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, we see recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, here in Matthew 21, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a den of robbers. You know, it, it's hard to imagine Jesus is not just angry, but like physically angry. Can we even say enraged? You know, I think this picture of, of Christ in the temple is you know, something maybe we can live with. And yet, this other picture with Jesus and the whip, it can be a little unsettling for us. 
can't it? It, it shatters this image that we have of Jesus as this docile, soft-spoken, you know, easy-smiling Messiah. But I think, you know, this story begs the question, what is it that would send Jesus into this place? Why such a strong display of emotion that seems so unlike him? You know, as many of you may know, the Passover was a big deal in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. You know, most scholars estimate that during this time, the population of Jerusalem would rise from about 100,000 or so to several million. That's like 30 to 40 times what's normal. And then it would attract people from all over the world. And this was an important annual pilgrimage for every faithful Jew, as well as foreigners who desired to honor God. So with this mass influx of people, you can imagine the chaos that would ensue and the money-making opportunities that would arise. And it was during this time that these pilgrims would pay their temple tax and also purchase animals for sacrifice as part of the Passover celebration. But greedy money changers would seize this opportunity by setting up shop in the court of Gentiles, which was a designated area for foreigners to worship in the temple. And would squeeze them out of their space and it would hamper their ability to encounter God in worship. And many of these merchants would charge exorbitant amounts for visitors to exchange their pagan currency into acceptable Jewish funds. And they would also exploit the poor by abusing their authority in determining which animals met their standard for proper sacrifice. Which is why Jesus called it a, a den of robbers. And this is all a tragedy because the Passover was designed by God to be a holy celebration, reminding his children of their liberation from Egypt. It was to tell, to tell the story of God's love, God's deliverance, and through that story, draw all people to himself. And yet, it had become the opposite of that. Instead of serving as a bridge to God, it became a barrier. And this angered Jesus. How could all these millions of people who had come from so far to honor God and experience his loving kindness, his liberation, his healing power, do so when they were being exploited in this way? And it's interesting, but I think it's easy to miss. In Matthew 21, 14, the very next verse, we're told that immediately after he clears out the court, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple. And he healed them. And so now I think we can see why Jesus did what he did. Why he was so angry. Jesus was making a way for those who needed him most to experience his restoration, his love. The blind and the broken, the lame and the lecherous, the foreigners and the forgotten. His desire is always to bless the broken. And Jesus loved those that the world found unlovable. He spoke for those who could not speak for themselves. He stood for those who could not stand, sometimes literally. And if this story tells us anything, I believe it's that God is far less interested in receiving our unblemished sacrifices or our religious acts of service, and, but, and far more interested in blessing his beloved children with his healing power with liberation from sin, with ultimate redemption. And when those who claim to be serving him 
stood as a barrier to this and not a bridge. This infuriated Christ. David Paulson, again in his book, Good and Angry, he shares this insight into understanding God's anger along with his love. And he speaks of the confusion that many of us experience, particularly when we hear Jesus' parable of the workers in the vineyard. It's a very brief parable, if you remember. It's a story where a landowner hires workers for his vineyard, but he hires them at different points of the day. And yet he pays all of them the same amount, whether they came at the start of the day or came at the very end of the day, at the 11th hour. And we can all relate to this dissonance, right, that we feel, the seeming injustice of this. Like, how, how can the guys who came at the last hour get paid the same as the guys who worked all day? And Paulson writes this. He says, as much as we need it ourselves, grace can be a hard thing to swallow when it is extended to someone else. Can you relate to the all-day worker's distress? I can. And the anger that I feel or would feel in their situation reminds me that my anger is not as pure as God's anger. It reminds me how much I need the grace that I sometimes begrudge others. The parable of the workers shows how hard it is for us to reconcile anger, which is so often fueled by self-righteousness and love, which rejoices in another's good. And that makes it hard for us to understand that God's anger and love are entirely consistent with each other. They are different expressions of his goodness and glory. You can't understand God's love if you don't understand his anger. Because he loves, he's angry at anything that harms those he loves. Notice the way God's children experience his anger. His anger is expressed on their behalf as supremely tender love. And I believe that is what we witness in the temple courts. Not just anger, but anger that is moved and motivated by love. Secondly, let's look at what made Jesus grieve. What made Jesus grieve? You know, I want to move to another encounter when Jesus experienced actually both anger and grief simultaneously. Uh, There is uh, this brief encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees early on in his ministry in Mark chapter 3, in which we see this in display. Mark 3 verse 1 says, Again, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that is the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Then it says this, And Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. You know, by the end of the story, everyone's angry, right? Jesus at the Pharisees and the Pharisees at Jesus But the Pharisees are so blinded 
by their legalism and their strict observance of the Sabbath laws, that they have completely lost sight of any concern for their fellow man. And Jesus' attempts to open their eyes to the sheer ludicrousness of this by asking them in front of everyone, is it good or is it wrong to do good and heal this man out of his affliction? And they can't even answer. And when they refuse to answer this simple question, Jesus is overcome with emotion, both anger and grief. These Pharisees are standing in the way of the restoration of of this poor man's withered, shriveled hand. And they're supposed to be men of God, and yet they cared nothing for the pain and suffering that this man was enduring. Only their laws and their self-righteousness. And this astonished Christ, because this is not at all the heart of God. In his book, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, B.B. Warfield writes this, Jesus burned with anger against the wrongs he met with in his journey through human life, as truly as he melted with pity at the sight of the world's misery. And it was out of these two emotions that his actual mercy proceeded. And it makes me wonder, does your anger burn for yourself or for others? Are you grieved by the pain of others or so fixated on your own pain that you can't even see the pain that others are carrying? God's anger, God's grief led him to fight for justice, to do justice, to seek mercy. And it compelled him to love and to serve others. Lastly, I want to examine not only what made Jesus grieve, but also what made him weep. What made Jesus weep? Uh, Many of you probably know the Bible trivia question, like, what is the shortest verse in the Bible? (laughs) Two words. Jesus wept. But more than being known for its brevity, I think this short verse should be treasured because of what it tells us about the heart of God. Jesus' good friend Lazarus had fallen gravely ill, and, and his sisters Martha and Mary are deeply disappointed in Jesus because when they sent an urgent word to him that Lazarus was sick and that they needed him quickly, he instead delayed his return, and Lazarus dies. And neither Mary nor Martha can make sense of this. And they're so angry, and they're so hurt by Jesus. But in John 11, verses 33 to 35, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And I think those two words are so remarkable. Because when you think about it, why did Jesus weep? Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead within a matter of moments. So it could not be because his beloved friend was gone. In fact, we're already told that Jesus intentionally delayed getting to Lazarus by two days 
so that he would die before he got there, so that God would be glorified. So why is Jesus weeping? You know, if I had Jesus' foreknowledge and if I had Jesus' power in that moment, I would have said, hey, guys, just relax. (laughs) I got this. Stop your crying already. I would have shown no empathy. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't do this, does he? He's deeply troubled in his spirit. He's moved. And he weeps with them. I believe Jesus is weeping because even though he knows how it will all end, his heart hurts when our heart hurts. His spirit is moved and troubled when our spirits are moved and troubled. Our pain is his pain. Our sorrow is his sorrows. And he was the perfect embodiment of perfect empathy. And he demonstrated in this moment what the Apostle Paul would later tell all of Christ's followers to do which is rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. That was the example of Christ for all of us. And in joining us in our grief, Jesus demonstrates that he is grieved at the brokenness of this world caused by sin. And he weeps over the death and destruction that sin has created. But he does not stand aloof in silence. He steps into our broken world in the fullness of humanity. And he gives himself up to rescue and redeem this world from sin. God's emotions reveal the inner nature of his heart. And it shows us that he is for the lost and the broken. This is the heart of God. And I believe this is what his emotions reveal to the world, for the world, that God loves the world. He so loves the world in all of its brokenness. As you know, we we began a new series on the Sermon of the Mount a few weeks ago, and I've been struck by the, the beauty of the Beatitudes As we heard several times, the Beatitudes are not a list of requirements to achieve or virtues that we should emulate, but the Beatitudes are simply a description of the kind of people who are responding to Jesus' invitation to enter his kingdom, right? And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, Blessed are those who mourn and who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers and the persecuted. He's not just saying that these are the type of people whom I will bless. I believe Jesus is saying that these are the very people by whom God himself is blessed. These are the marks of his children, his beloved, in whom he delights. But it doesn't stop there. Here's the kicker. I believe these are the people, not only whom God has blessed, but through whom God will bless the entire world. These are the people through whom God will bless the entire world. So it's not just blessed are the poor in spirit. It's I will bless the world through the poor in spirit. It's not just blessed are those who mourn. It's I will bless the world through my children who mourn. 
And to me, you know, there's something so beautifully redemptive about that. That God will not waste your spiritual poverty or gloss over your meek or broken soul. But God sees your mourning and your grieving heart. And he knows your deep and your painful hunger and longing for him. And it all has a purpose. He will use it to bless the world. And if you are a broken person who has been broken by this world, but who has turned to Jesus and who follows him, Jesus says, you are the very ones upon whom I will unleash my blessings upon all. Through my Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be the ones who will bring my kingdom into this world. You are the ones who will accomplish my will on earth as it is in heaven. And this past week, um, I came across uh, a blog post written by Jane Marcheski, I think that's how you pronounce her name, who was a recent contestant on America's Got Talent. And um, she's someone who's battling cancer and has a 2% chance of survival. And she is no stranger to pain and suffering. And some of you may have seen her audition. I think it was like a week or so ago. Um, her audition brought the entire panel of judges to tears. Even Simon Cowell. <laughs> and, you know, it's gone viral. And so many are being blessed by not just her audition, but by her story. I'm not going to show her, her vid, the video of her audition, but if you get a chance to watch it, you should. It, you know, in it, she sings a song that she wrote entitled, It's Okay. And it's incredibly moving. But I do want to share with you a portion of, a, of a, her blog post, which captures so powerfully and with such raw honesty her wrestling with God in the midst of her pain, in the midst of all her questions, and how God met her in that place. It's a bit long, but I think it's worth hearing. It, it really is like a modern-day psalm of lament. And she writes this. I have had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I am God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, Sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I have called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want. That's fair. 
Count, count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. It's not the mercy that I ask for, but it's mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but one I will repeat until I do. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale. Laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad too. Call me cursed. Call me lost. Call me scorned. But that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one whom God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden from me. Even on days when I'm not sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there, even now. I've heard it said that some people cannot see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. Amen. Where have you seen God in your life? I think God is not often found in the places that we think we will find him. Is he? He's more often discovered not in our pleasure, but in our pain. And he's not rubbing elbows with the pious and the religious elite. He's touching the face of a leper. He's lifting the head of a prostitute. And he's not in the temple holding service in the Holy of Holies. He's holding a whip in the outer courts, driving out those who are obstructing people from God. And his eyes are always searching to and fro, looking for the broken, looking for the contrite in heart. And those are the ones that he accepts with open arms. Those are the ones whom he will never deny. And those are the ones through whom he will bless the world. In a moment, we're going to enter into a time of communion. So if, if you could please ready the elements, whether you're here or at home, so we can take them together. Um, yeah, it's no coincidence that Jesus' death was on the week of Passover. Um, in giving up his sinless body as a sacrifice, Jesus was fulfilling his purpose as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which is what his broken body and his poured out blood represented. And this is why Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. Just as your spirit is broken, I have out of my own volition broken my body for you. Take, take and eat. Then he took a cup and he said, this is the blood of my covenant, my promise to you, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.
However, we would be remiss if we ended our communion just there upon the reflection of his sacrifice. The Passover looks backward at the sacrifice of Christ. It is remembering what he has saved us from. But it is also a celebration that looks forward to what God has saved us for. And this is why when he takes communion with his disciples in the upper room, he ends with this. He says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He has saved us from our sin. He has saved us from judgment. He has saved us from hell. But let us not forget today what he has also saved us for. He has saved us for himself. He has saved us for union, perfect union with him for all eternity. Joyful fellowship in the new heaven and the new earth where together we will drink of the fruit of the vine under his perfect rule, under his perfect reign where the broken will experience the fullness of God's blessing for all eternity. Let's take the bread together. As well as the juice. And I ask, just take a moment and reflect upon these truths. Lord, as we look into your face, a face that is, reflects all the emotions that we experience day by day. A face that is mourned. face that has hungered and thirsted for righteousness, a face that has been persecuted, insulted, a face that is poor in spirit and yet pure in heart. A face that is mourned and yet is meek and merciful. fast your promises that we would experience the fullness of your blessings as we follow you in your mourning in your meekness in your persecution in your hunger and thirst for righteousness we pray that you would fill us with the power of your spirit the power of the resurrection power of your blood to bless all those around us that you desire to bless in this world because you have called us blessed despite our brokenness because of our brokenness open our eyes Lord to the work you're doing in our lives open our eyes to the work you want to do in and through us
so that others might see your light and your love. We love you. We praise you. We worship you. Thank you. We pray all this in your son's precious, precious name.